Is there more to life than being healthy and wealthy and happy? Is there more to life? Let me just answer that question quickly. No, there isn't more to life. That's it. Life is about grabbing as much as you possibly can. Amen? No, all right. All right, so you thought I was going off there. I hope so. I, because whenever I go off on some weird thing, you've got to be testing me by the Scriptures, okay? Of course there's more. I'm just kidding. Sometimes I, I think about the possibility of my children getting terminal illnesses, and uh, it's unsettling to me. And I pray that God keeps my kids healthy. I think a lot of parents probably pray that. I want that for them, but I want something else more for them. Because I believe there is something more than being healthy, wealthy, and temporally happy. More than anything else, I want my children to know God. To know Christ deeply. I want them to have a single passion in life. A life-consuming passion that the Orient, everything around this, namely to follow Jesus Christ. Our vision for our children must be greater than their safety and their material comfort. We often put so much time into providing for them opportunities and activities and a chance to prosper in a safe environment. We bend over backwards as parents to to give the world to our kids and during the ambition and pace of life, we can easily lose perspective that there is more for our kids than temporal blessings. There is the gospel. Let this reality sink in. Every child born with, is born with a spiritual cancer called original sin. It's terminal. That should break our hearts. We should yearn every day for their healing with really a parental fanaticism which compels us to do whatever is possible, whatever we can, to see their hearts healed. Every single one of our children will live forever. Will live forever, either in eternal hell under the wrath and judgment of God or in heaven in the presence of Christ in everlasting joy. We flat out cannot afford to treat eternal truths flippantly and spend our days belittling the glory and majesty of God by prioritizing earthly things above our children's spiritual health and growth. Can I get an amen? There is more than physical health. There is more than this world. There is spiritual health and eternity far greater things. We must wake up. We must wake up. Parents, think beyond death. This morning, I want you to lean into this text that we're going to look at and wonder at the power and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Be awestruck this morning. And if by God's grace, you end up marveling And what we're going to look at, help your children, your household, to marvel at the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Teach them to wonder at Jesus. My first point is...
Some ways of believing in Jesus are not pleasing to Jesus. Some ways of believing in Jesus are not pleasing to Jesus. Earlier in chapter 3, Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee. He passed through Samaria, and after two days uh, spending with the Samarians, Samaritans rather, he left for Galilee, which was about a 50-mile walk. Not an easy walk. In verse 44, John explained why Jesus traveled from Samaria to Galilee. He says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus traveled to his home of Galilee because he had no honor there. Now, does that strike you as odd? Remember, the Samaritans believed in Jesus. They experienced this incredible spiritual awakening without seeing any miracles. They just believed his word. And then Jesus purposefully headed to his hometown where he had no honor and where people would only believe if they saw miracles. Why go? Why go? First of all, earlier in John 1.11, we learn Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Jews rejected him. His hometown rejected him. His own family rejected him, so why go back? The best explanation that I could find was that Jesus continually and graciously offered himself, the gospel, to his own. They continually rejected him, which eventually got him killed, and that was the very reason that Jesus Christ came to earth. In other words, it was God's sovereign design for Jesus to go back to Galilee in order to continually and graciously appeal and appeal to his own hometown, and they would eventually kill him. It's also a bit odd that when he returned to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They welcomed him. Now, that seems admirable at first glance, but the Galileans had ulterior motives. Verse 45 says, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So what does that tell us? They welcomed Jesus because they saw him do awesome stuff. Right? They saw him do incredible miracles in Jerusalem. John 2.23 says, When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs That he was doing. Now that sounds good, right? They believed in his name. Aren't we supposed to believe in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, you got to keep reading and find out in John 2 24 and 25 that Jesus knew their hearts. And uh, he saw the duplicity of their faith, the insincerity of their faith. The Galileans were just simply impressed. The Galileans were eager to see signs and they welcomed Jesus as a type of of celebrity, really, who could do cool stuff, not as Lord, Savior, and God like the Samaritans did in Sychar. I read a study note that said, the reception was likely that of curiosity seekers whose appetite centered more on seeing miracles than believing in Jesus as Messiah as it had been at the feast. Their motivation is confirmed in verse 48 where Jesus said, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. He knew their hearts. People still use Jesus. They use him 
to satisfy their covetousness. I'll come to Jesus if he gives me health, wealth, and prosperity, right? I'll take your Jesus if he's going to improve my life. Instead of receiving Jesus as the satisfaction of their soul, the solution to their sinful desperation and depravity. Jesus becomes more of a showman. He becomes more of a, a philanthropist instead of Savior and God. Be careful, my friends. Jesus is not a genie to be summoned. He is God to be worshipped. That brings us to my second point. Sometimes we miss how self-centered our requests are of God. We miss how self-centered we are and when we ask and plead with God. Cana and Jesus had met each other. They knew each other. In chapter 2, Jesus performed his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine. In verse 46, Jesus returns to Cana. Now, Jesus was naturally growing famous from the time that he turned the water into wine and he performed the miracles at Jerusalem and then he returned back to Cana. The word about his power and what this man could do got out. He was becoming more famous. A a certain royal officer from Capernaum, whose son was severely ill, had heard about this magnificent power of Jesus. Maybe he had seen it directly at Jerusalem if he was there, which is a possibility. This officer was a basilikos, a royal officer, meaning someone that serves the king. The equivalent of a king in those days was Herod Antipas, a Roman tetrarch, over Galilee, that section, uh, during the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, originally, a tetrarch was the ruler of a a quarter, uh, one-fourth of a kingdom, but it eventually kind of morphed into just a territory, a ruler of a territory. And when Herod the Great died, the, the same Herod who tried to kill Jesus earlier on in his life, When he died, his rule was divided between his three sons. Herod Antipas was one of them. So this official in the story was likely in service to Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of that time. And here we find out that this man, maybe a a very important man, uh, his son was sick. His son was dying. That's hard to swallow as a dad. Uh, very hard to swallow. In Pittsburgh, we, we lived uh, pretty close to the Children's Hospital of UPMC, and I'd made a couple visits there, and the Hillman Center of Pediatric Transplantation at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh is one of the premier pediatric transplantation hospitals in the world, and one of the success stories that's online that comes out of the hospital is Mubarak Al-Kaabi from Qatar, from Qatar the whole way to the United States, to Pittsburgh, and um, for a heart transplant at the age of five. And it was successful. And they have pictures of the cute kid on there, and I think he's grown uh, since then. But his parents did what they could to get good health care to this child. Isn't that what parents do? I mean, if your kids get sick, you're just, what, what can I do to put them in, in, in the best position to experience healing? And that is what this father was doing. 
Verse 47 says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, so he's coming into the region, he's coming local, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The royal official heard that Jesus was local. He's in the area. This is not a far stretch for me to go. I'm going. And that translated into hope for this father. The miles across the rugged terrain were worth it. Desperation and love for this little boy were driving this guy. I gotta go. It's my son. He's dying. And we do the same thing, whatever it takes for our children to be healed. This dad believed. He believed. But what I think you'll begin to see is that his motivation for coming to Jesus wasn't the desperation of his spiritual need. Not even his son's spiritual need. Not even his family's spiritual need for Christ as Lord and Savior. His concern as a father was temporal, not eternal. Here are a few observations. The official's urgency was his son, not his spiritual condition. Look at verse 47. This desperate father urged Jesus to come and heal his son, but his focus was his son's health. Not on the presence of God in the flesh right there before him. Not on salvation in Jesus or even in the person of Jesus. Jesus was a means to a temporary end for this dad. And that was it. The emotion of the near death of his son, which we can all identify with, was so intense, it would be for any of us, but it supplanted and overshadowed the spiritual desperation of him and his family. God was there with him. And though this man believed in Jesus' power to heal, he disregarded his power to save. Desperation is not saving faith. Desperation is not saving faith. Saving faith coincides with love and admiration for Jesus, not only because of what he can do, but because of who he is. He is worth more than what he can do for you and me. His worth is beyond that. It's beyond physical healing, beyond wealth and prosperity, beyond improved relationships or victory over addictions or whatever. Jesus is Savior and Lord and God, not simply the improver of your life. Desperation becomes saving faith only when God's grace reveals to you the horror and depth of your sin and the radical spiritual need that you have for Jesus to save you from your sins. And when you love and cherish Him as your only hope to be reconciled to God, then desperation is saving faith. Because Jesus brings you to the Father, to God, to be reconciled and to enjoy Him. Saving faith is coming to Jesus to get God not simply the benefits that God gives. Back in 2002, Denzel Washington starred in this movie called John Q. Some of you might have seen it, about a mom and a dad whose son collapses on the baseball field uh, with an enlarged heart. And um, he needs a transplant. And so to complicate things, the dad's insurance didn't cover the surgery, and they needed to raise $75,000 to get the kid's name on the donor list. Well, they couldn't raise the money. 
So in desperation, the dad grabs a gun and heads into the ER and takes 11 hostages and demands that his son be added to the donor list. Now, there's a lot more to the plot, but the son eventually gets a heart and the dad eventually gets acquitted of more serious charges and found guilty of only kidnapping. Now, certainly a weird view of justice in the film. It's uncomfortable, I think. Uh, but brings up some good things, too, to at least think through. But it's a good illustration of how natural and rational desires, good desires, in the movie it was the good desire to save the son, can overshadow spiritual needs and God's providence and therefore become idolatrous desires. In the film, instead of falling on his knees in prayer with faith in the sovereign plan and providence of God, instead of focusing on bringing glory to Jesus in how they interacted with the doctors and the hospital staff, he grabbed a handgun and took matters into his own hands. The desire to save your son's life is really good, but sometimes... Our desires for earthly things overpower our focus on the urgent spiritual need and that only in Christ will we be fully and finally satisfied life or death. Another observation. The official's belief was very limited. Notice the official believed that Jesus needed to travel from Cana to Capernaum to do the miracle. He needed to travel to heal the son. His faith was very different than the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8, a similar but a different event. The centurion's servant was paralyzed. He was suffering uh, terribly. And Jesus actually offered to the centurion, I will come to your home and I will heal your servant. Now listen to what the centurion said. Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof but only say the word. Just speak his healing and my servant will be healed. Matthew 8.10 reads, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Imagine what it takes for God to marvel. Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then Jesus healed the servant. But for the royal official, Jesus needed to come. you got to come in the flesh. A third observation. The official's belief only went as far as death. His son was at the point of death. He loved his son. He was desperate. And the dad pleaded yet again in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. As in, if he dies, it's too late. We've missed it if he dies. The father's urgency went as far as death. Could Jesus raise his son from the dead? Was there another more important resurrection for his son? He apparently didn't believe beyond death. Now think of it this way. When God asked Abraham to kill Isaac, do you remember that story? Kill Isaac, his son, the son of promise, the son that God promised amazing things through. Abraham proceeded because he believed that God would honor his promises, that he would do it through Isaac and that he would raise Isaac from the dead if Abraham killed Isaac. That's what was in his mind. God will raise my son because he promised me that he'd do it, so I'll kill him then. And then you'll raise him, and you'll continue to do 
honor your promises through him. Abraham's faith went beyond death. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 explain this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So understand, the knife was in the air. The hammer is coming down. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The official's faith stopped at death. One more observation brings it all together. Believing in and desiring to see miracles are not the same as desiring Jesus. It's not the same as desiring Jesus. Jesus was very direct and striking in verse 48. The official was desperate. His son is sick. And in the middle of that tender moment, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, there's a lot to see in that statement. First, when Jesus said you, in verse 48, both times it's plural. So he's talking to the official, but he's talking with the plural you. So he's, he's talking about the Galileans as well. Jesus was referring to the official and the Galileans who wanted to be wowed by miracles. Paul recognized this prevalent desire in Jews to see miracles. He mentioned in 1 Corinthians one twenty two, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Believing in miracles and desiring to see them is very different than trusting Christ. John addressed this later in John 12.37. It says, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. He's doing tons of signs. People are seeing the evidence, not believing. I'm not trusting him. People can see miracles and still reject Jesus. And one way is to explain the miracles away as either fairy tale or maybe just unscientific. That we've graduated beyond these little fables that we learn when we're kids. How is it possible to see miracles with your own eye and still reject Jesus, because miracles never create in people saving faith. God's grace does. God gives faith. John explained in verses 39 and 40, they could not believe, he wrote. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah and John referred to God-blinding eyes and hardening hearts. Miracles are insufficient to save and have no power to change someone's heart because only God can give new life. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to regenerate someone and change them, to bring dead hearts to life. Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not signs and wonders. The gospel. It is very dangerous for churches to focus more on miraculous signs and wonders than on the gospel. And many churches do. It's like if you watch YouTube or watch some of these televangelists, you will see this insatiable desire to see the spectacular. And they're, they're calling out signs and wonders and miracles and they're doing things that you're like, I don't think that that's squaring with what I'm seeing in the Bible. 
Be very careful when you encounter teachers who place emphasis on the miraculous above the authority and power of the Word of God. The charismatic movement thrives off of a desire to see and experience miracles, but believing in and desiring to see miracles have never been the same as desiring Jesus and truth. One pastor captured it well. Quote, and the official seems to be asking for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. I have a health need, fix it. Not, I have sin, forgive it and give me power to live for you. Unbelievers don't love God, they use God. End of quote. Sometimes we miss how self-centered our requests of God really are. Instead of wanting to be satisfied by Jesus... We ask more to satisfy our selfish lusts and covetousness. To my third point. More than physical healing, Jesus gives ultimate healing. Much more than than just being physically healed, he gives you ultimate healing. Watch grace work. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Even though the official's motives were self-centered in coming to Jesus, Jesus still healed his son. This is amazing grace. God gives grace despite our motives. We miss something in English in verse 50. Jesus did not use the future tense. It wasn't your son will live. Um, he, he was, it was in the present tense, your son is living. That's what he was saying. Jesus was not saying, hey, hey, look, man, you know, I think things are going to work out for your son. No, instead, he was declaring at that moment that the son would be healed. Uh, he was saying, I just healed your son. He's alive. He's living. Now, how do we know that Jesus truly did a miracle? Well, verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus actually healed the son. He compassionately gave the father what he asked, but he did even more than that. He changed the father's heart. And he changed the father's family. Watch. Verse 47 and 49, the official pleads with Jesus to come to his house and heal his son. But then in verse 50, the official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. All of a sudden, the word of Jesus Christ was sufficient. Before it wasn't sufficient. Now if he speaks it, it is sufficient. And he leaves and he believes in what Jesus did. Something had changed in the man. He saw no change in his son. He saw no sign. He simply heard the words of Jesus and that was now enough to believe He believed Jesus was sovereign over death. Jesus is sovereign over illness. Bacteria bow the knee to Jesus. Viruses bow the knee to Jesus. Cancer and heart disease and chronic pain and fevers all bow the knee to Jesus. And you know, folks, this translates into we can have no fear in life of illness, sickness, death, what tragedy might happen Because our Christ reigns supreme over everything. He has the power to veto disease and heal. He has the power to give life and he has the power and authority to take life. All things are his and he rules over 
everything. And here he displayed his sovereignty in the healing of this man's son. There's more. As this man returned home to Capernaum, believing his son is now alive and healed, his servants come to him in the middle of the journey and they told him, your son's living. Your son's living. And so the ESV says recovering, but I think it's living. I think that's more literal. The same thing is in verse 50. In verses 52 and 53, the official just had to ask about the timing. He was interested enough to say, all right, all right. I got to ask when this all went down. Because I have a feeling that when Jesus said it, it just happened simultaneously. And so I'm going to test this a little bit because I think that's where it's going. And so he asked the servants the hour when his son began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, which was probably 1 p.m., the fever left him. Was that when Jesus spoke? One o'clock around there, seventh hour? Well, the father knew, verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. What a wonderful confirmation for this dad. Um, That was the moment when Jesus said the word and the deadly fever broke on the spot. That's the power of God. That's the power of our Christ. That's what we beckon you to believe in. That's what John is pleading with you. Believe in this Jesus Christ because he's God and he can do anything. Come to him. He'll transform your life. Don't reject him. Don't take him lightly. Take him seriously because he's good and he will take your life and rework it and change your heart and give you new desires and put you on a path that you've never been on before and he will give you joy that you've never experienced before. This is our Jesus. This is our Christ. This is God. Do you believe this actually happened? I mean, really believe it in your gut. I believe. I I didn't see it. I wasn't there But boy, as sure as tomorrow will come, I believe. If you do, it has massive implications on your life. Massive, if this happened. Think of what this means for us. And there are people who read the biblical account, who read the Gospels, and dismiss this history as fairy tale. These people oftentimes believe religion is a crutch for fools, You're an idiot if you believe this. Are you serious? You haven't intellectually gone beyond these little miracles with the flannel graph in Sunday school that you learned many years ago? And science becomes law for the intelligent. Many belittle religious thought and study and pit religion and science against each other, which I think is extremely unfair and intellectually flat-out dishonest. In part, when you consider many leading scientists of their time were Christians, Kepler, Galileo, Pascal, Boyle, one of the fathers of modern chemistry, Newton. To say religion and science are at odds is at least bad history. What we find in God's word and our personal experience is that belief does not come from evidence even though there is overwhelming evidence. I mean, when you study the New Testament and the Old Testament, the reliability of the manuscripts, and you put them up against any other ancient manuscripts, it's laughable how much more the Bible has and and how meticulous it was. Shakespeare is like way behind the Bible. 
in terms of reliability of having what the documents actually said. It's laughable. And many people just don't know those kind of details, that evidence. But the point I'm trying to make is, even with overwhelming evidence, the evidence doesn't bring people to saving faith. Belief comes from God's sovereign grace giving new life to the mind, the will, and the affections. Everyone has the same evidence. Now, reality can be interpreted in various ways, but various interpretations of reality never change reality. Reality is absolute. It is what happened. And so just because you have different vantage points doesn't change the actual core of what actually happened. Let me show you what I mean and then apply it. Example number one. In John 9, Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. And the Pharisees had a hard time receiving that truth. Uh, They couldn't argue with the fact that Jesus had just given this guy his sight and healed this man. So do you know what they did? Instead of like interacting with the evidence and trying to disprove, they, they couldn't disprove it. This is what they did. They got mad and cast the man out of the synagogue. The miracle didn't cause them to believe in Jesus. It only elevated their hatred of Jesus. Example number two. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the chief priests and elders didn't dispute his resurrection. Read the account. They didn't dispute the evidence that he was now alive. How could they? The Roman soldiers had just seen it happen. Instead, they paid off the soldiers to spread lies about the evidence. Uh, And those lies still exist today. Swoon theory, things like that. Even the resurrection was not a sufficient miracle to produce saving faith in the skeptics. That's amazing to me. Doesn't that amaze you? You could see Jesus Christ in the flesh raised from the dead and it still wouldn't do anything to your dead heart because God needs to bring the change. Example number three is outside of the Bible. There are people who actually reject the Holocaust as historic reality. I went on to this one crazy site and pulled up, which uh, oddly, it had Bible believers in the web address. I'm like, no, don't do that. Anyway, it, it had this quote. Within five minutes, any intelligent, open-minded person can be convinced that the Holocaust gassings of World War II are a profitable hoax. What do you even do with that, honestly? You're like, are you serious? That's what you're going to bring us. The point I'm trying to make is that evidence is insufficient for people to believe in Jesus. Miracles are insufficient to produce faith. What causes faith in people is God's sovereign grace working through the truth of God's word. This royal official did not see his son healed before he believed. By grace, he believed, and then the miracle was confirmed later. Do you know how the story ends? The whole family got saved John 4.53 says, And he himself believed and all his household. God's grace swept through this family and it started with dad. It started with the father. He was the head of this household and his entire household was saved by God's grace and the healing of the son was only part of it. Dads. All dads, listen very closely, especially if you're under the age of 40. You have a particular role to lead and pastor 
your wife and children in the truth of God's word. The power to produce change is in the word. The word which is dispensed by you. God has put you in charge. You must be captivated, dads, by the power and supremacy of Christ, and then you must disciple your family. God gave you that mission. That is your responsibility. Now live it. You cannot afford to sit there on your hands and not lead spiritually, and if you do, God will judge you for it because it's your responsibility. Parents, take every opportunity you possibly can to show your families the gospel, the healing power of Jesus Christ. Make it your ambition in life to show your family that there is more for them than health, wealth, and temporal happiness. There's so much more. And show them the evidence and defend the Bible and make sure that when your kids turn five, they know Scripture. You start before that. Start reading them the word when they are born and can't understand yet, so we think. Show them there is more. There is the glory of God to satisfy them forever. So why as a parent would you be so cruel to set your child up to value things that will... And then what will they have? No, no. Parents, I plead with you. Our church, the direction our church is going, we will have more for parents to train them. We, we don't have a ton now, but we're going in that direction to equip young people, even people who aren't married yet, to be godly and biblical and to get married and have a vision to raise up children for the glory of King Jesus and to do that by taking an active interest in their de- spiritual development and teaching them and discipling. You know what the Great Commission is? You make disciples and you teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So as a parent, let's just start there. I've got, God gave me a mission field at home to make disciples of my children, to teach them to observe all that Jesus has said. And dads, you've got to take the lead. I'm not perfect, but I'm taking the lead. I'm not perfect. Make mistakes. There's stuff on my, oh, that's messy. Got to work through that. Got to get better at that, man. I fail. But I am taking the lead, and I'm asking you to, as I follow Christ, follow me. Okay? Do it in your home. Jesus wants you to. The spiritual health of you, your spouse, your kids is way more important than anything else. Generations are looking to you. You must be faithful. All that we studied this morning is true. It happened, it's history. And because it is, we have every reason to put our full trust in Jesus Christ with our lives. He's not going to let you down, I promise you. He promises you more than me. He promises you. He is God. Wonder and marvel at Him and believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. I pray for the dads here this morning that look at their children and God, they, they want the best for them. They want the best for their wife. They want the best for their family. But God, we're broken men and so a lot of times we look and, and we focus on temporal things. This dad was focused on the healing of his son but 
uh, our son might not be sick, our daughter might not be sick, we might look and, and be concerned about their education or um, how they do on uh, sports teams or clubs that they're in. And, and we can focus, God, wrongly on insignificant things, making them primary things. Education's awesome. We should give our kids education. But there's something more than that. We should give our kids a vision for following Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit does what, what I can't, that you speak through your word to impact a few dads today to start taking their, their uh, spiritual direction of their family more seriously. God, that they would yearn to see their children healed of original sin, healed of destructive patterns of sin because dads want to see them freed up to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the worship and glory of God. God, thank you that Jesus so clearly proved himself to us and we see him do these fantastic miracles and we've read them a bunch of times. We've heard about Jesus doing miracles. We've seen the cartoon of it or something and, and God, we just, it, it wears off and we don't see the weight of it. God, impress upon us the wonder and awe that Jesus was able to just heal a kid by his word. He wasn't even with them. Help us to believe that kind of stuff and to have it motivate us to, to live for Christ and to give everything to him. So God, that's your grace. I'm just asking that you do a work of grace in our congregation. In the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory alone we pray, amen.